Hello, and welcome to Magic is Real, a podcast focused on the fascinating world of near-death experiences, spirit communication, and all things metaphysical and spiritual. The mission of this project is to share messages of hope and inspiration with others, and to spread the word that death is only an illusion. Thank you for being here with an open heart and mind. I wish you peace, light, and love always. Hello, Magic Israel listeners. Thank you so much for being here today. And also, thank you to my guest, Bill Vandenbush, who I am really looking forward to interviewing. I will tell you who he is, but first, I just have to say, welcome, Bill. Thank you so much for taking time to be here today. Thank you, Shannon. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate I'm it. I'm thrilled to have you on. And I just appreciate, I was just telling you, you are a near-death experiencer but you're also a speaker and an author. And I know you have told your story so many times. And so I give you an extra thanks for showing up and being willing to share again. Uh, Bill is a Vietnam veteran. He's also worked uh, uh, for veteran services. And you can elaborate on that when we tell, when we tell your story. Sure. But uh, you have a remarkable story. You've actually had three near-death experiences, which we will talk about. Yes. Um, and really, we can start from wherever you prefer, but I always like to go back to who you were when you were a little kid, because I think that really informs your experience when you have a spiritually transformative experience. And I know that from having read your bio that you you always had some awareness of something greater, but you can start from wherever you like in your life to just set up the set the scene for what was going on and what you who you thought you were back at back <laughs> before this all happened to you. Well, back when I was a little kid, I always had some curiosity about life. Um, I had curiosity about religious and spiritual things, um, although. I got very disillusioned with religion very early on, like around six or seven years old. And um, so as I grew older, of course, I was just open-minded. Um, I didn't really go looking for uh, any kind of unusual experiences or uh, I kind of knew what a uh, near-death, I didn't really know what a near-death experience was. I'd actually never heard that term, but I knew what like astral projection was and uh, things, things like that. Um, but uh, when I was 18, uh, right after high school, I decided to join the army and it was kind of, I, I was kind of driven by some kind of external force that I didn't really understand at all to do this. I was, uh, it was like what I was supposed to do, uh, even though it was crazy. This was 1968, the height of the Vietnam War. And I joined the army and volunteered to be an infantry soldier and go to Vietnam. And uh, uh, that was just kind of crazy in itself, you know. Yeah. But uh, I went through training. Um, I did fairly well. 
Um, I was a good soldier. I actually liked the army to a certain degree, um, as much as somebody in that position can. Yeah. And uh, I liked the camaraderie. I liked the, the teamwork. Um, I liked the feeling of working hard and the thought of defending my country. And, uh, and also there was this um, kind of a male rite of passage uh, when, when a boy joins the military, he becomes a man, um, which is total BS, by the way, but. <laughs> it seems that way when you're 18. I, I didn't yeah. know at that time, you know, no. it seemed, it seemed like it to me that this was a great chance to grow up and, and be an adult. And, uh, so uh, because I had volunteered to go to Vietnam, of course, they sent me right to training and uh, sent me right off to, to Vietnam. Um, I kind of knew that, that it was okay to go, but I was afraid at the same time because I knew that it was dangerous, that the chances of coming back were slim um, and, uh, especially in 1968, you know, I mean, this was, uh, we were losing a lot of soldiers at that time. Excuse me. I need to reset my headphones a little here. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's warm in here and I'm <laughs> starting to sweat and slide I, I'm a voice uh, actor. I understand the feeling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, we, uh, uh, so I went to Vietnam and I immediately sensed that there was a lot of death and dying there, a lot of fear. In fact, when I first got off the airplane in Vietnam, it was hot and muggy. Uh, it was about uh, two or three o'clock in the morning. Uh, it was dark out. Uh, and we, we were at this little place. It was just like a, a, a little overhead shelter. There were some chairs. And uh, the sergeant came out and was talking to us and telling us to take a seat. And he described basically what was going to happen, what we were going to do, where we were going to go, what would happen when our name was called. We'd get on a bus. And that, that in itself was frightening, just thinking about yeah. getting on a bus and riding through the countryside, you know, in the middle of this war zone. Um, and I looked out behind this shelter and I saw these crates of, they were just big silver tubes inside the crates. You, the side of the crates were uh, kind of open and you could see these tubes in there. And I went to the sergeant and I said, what's in those tubes back there? And he says, oh, dead bodies. Well, I mean, there were thousands of them piled up back there. I mean, that just scared the heck out of me. I, I'm asking you this as, apart from your whole NDE story and being so privileged as to never having had, in my lifetime, ever had to experience anything like that. You said that, you know, when you signed up, you knew 
that there was a chance you wouldn't come back. And I wonder what it is inside of you that allows you to go anyway with that, to feel the fear and do it anyway. I mean, we're so spoiled. I can only imagine I'd have a meltdown the minute I got there. But what was it that gave you that courage? I mean, the courage to feel the fear and still be there. I'm just curious. Well, it was my choice to be there. And I had gone through all the army training, which is pretty good, actually. Um, uh, I felt fairly confident that I could handle combat. Um, Still scared. But as it turned out, those silver tubes didn't have bodies in them. They had bombs in them, Um, which is probably just as bad. Right. Uh, Either way, uh, it's, it's terrifying. Yeah, but that was my kind of my first frightening experience. I went through, you know, month after month, uh, being in the in the field as an infantry soldier, and being shot at, seeing people killed, seeing a lot of death and dying. Um, I was part of a reactionary force, so we probably saw maybe thirty to forty percent more combat than most of the other troops. Um, so I saw a lot more of that, the death, uh, not not just on our side, but on both sides. And, um, you know, it always, I always wondered what it would be like to be shot or to die. You know, that, that thought crosses your mind. Um, there's always fear, tremendous fear. Um, just unbelievable fear that that racks you on a daily basis. But you work through it. You you realize that you're there, that you have to do this. And you just move through it. You do what you have to do in spite of the fear. And um, it's, uh, it's not easy. Sometimes the fear is paralyzing. Um, but you realize that you know, that it's just as dangerous not to act and do the right thing as it is to, to be frozen with fear. So I went through my, my uh, months of, of combat in Vietnam and I was reaching the end of my tour and I had made friends with two guys, John and Hank, and we were like just brothers, closer than brothers. Um, and we always said that as long as the three of us were together, we could cover each other's back that, you know, even if we were in different squads or not necessarily working directly together, we were just kind of there emotionally for each other. Well, on this particular day, John and Hank went on R&R, um, and, uh, so they were, gone off to Thailand for a week or so. And I was left uh, to uh, lead a squad of men. But we were headed back to the rear area, so I thought, this will be fine. No problem. And uh, about, oh, maybe a couple hours after they were gone, uh, the company commander called me and a few other guys and said, look, there's a helicopter shot down. We need you to bring your squad. We're going to take volunteers and see if we can go get them, Um, which was standard. I mean, that was 
our job. It was not out of the norm to do that. So I said, sure, my squad would go. I had a good squad. They were well-trained. They were experienced. I knew that we could handle the job. So they loaded us up on helicopters. And as soon as we got to the area where this helicopter had been shot down, there was a lot of incoming fire. I mean, it was coming from all around and the helicopters just kind of swooped in and dropped us off. They didn't even really stop. We had to just jump out as they came close to the ground. And uh, as soon as I got out of that helicopter, I thought something's wrong here. You know, this is, I feel uncomfortable. Um, I've done this a hundred times before, uh, but this is different. Something was odd and I couldn't really put my finger on it. So we were taking heavy fire. So I instructed my squad to uh, move forward and I got a signal from the company commander because we didn't have a radio or a medic with us. And he signaled us to move around the base of the hill and he said he was going to take his group the other direction. Um, and basically, we would surround the enemy and the down helicopter and just kind of push in until we could provide security. And uh, so I thought that's okay, but we were taking very heavy fire. So I instructed my men to go forward and get down behind the bushes, get low. We were in a dried up rice paddy with dikes all around and tall bushes, hedgerows. And uh, I stayed back a little bit, kind of in a little indentation in the ground so I could have a better field of vision and see where the fire was coming from. And uh, uh, I would tell my men where to shoot and when to shoot. And uh, all of a sudden I heard jet planes coming over and I realized that the company commander must have been pinned down just like we were and called in an airstrike and I thought oh this isn't good and I watched them fly over they dropped their bombs on top of the hill you know and it's scary I mean you feel the heat you kind of hear the shrapnel zinging overhead and it's it's very frightening and I thought to myself, you know, if they drop those bombs just a little too early, they're gonna come right down on my position. And uh, sure enough, the next pass around, they dropped the bombs early and I watched them come down and landed right on my position. Um, I was hit in the face by a big piece of shrapnel that crushed the right side of my face, tore my right eye out. Um, I had shrapnel all down my right side. I was bleeding profusely. And there I was, I was now 19 years old. I had turned 19, uh, not, not long before this. And I thought, this is it, this is the end. This is the end of my life. And, you know, I, I there's so many things I haven't done. Um, I didn't really have what people call a life review. 
Um, maybe because I didn't have much life prior to that to review. But um, I thought about, you know, I had never had a, a, a relationship with a woman. I had never had, um, uh, you know, I just never had so many things in my life. I, um, I'd worked, I'd had jobs. Um, I had a family, but we didn't really get along real well. And I'm thinking that this is it. I'm going to die right here. And suddenly, I'm in this dark place, very quiet, peaceful. Suddenly, there's no more pain. Um, I'm still wounded, but I'm kind of gliding upward in this darkness. And I come out in this beautiful, bright, white light. I mean, it was just absolutely magnificent. And I thought, this is like where I want to be forever. This is, you know, this is heaven, obviously. And uh, I was, I was uh, not afraid. I felt no fear, no concern, no worry. And uh, I was there. I was just in awe of this beautiful place. And I saw this ball of light coming towards me. And when it arrived, I realized it was my grandfather who had died uh, several years prior to this. And he just kind of comforted me and said, you know, everything's going to be okay. Just hang in there and, and I'm going to show you around and show you the ropes and, and, um, uh, I have to tell you that when I was, I think I was about 12, um, my grandfather taught me to drink whiskey and chew tobacco. So, <laughs> uh, trusting him was maybe a little <laughs> difficult, but, but, uh, you know, I knew at least that I was in familiar hands and that things would be okay. And then, uh, as we moved forward into this bright white light and I could just sense the peace and the calm and the beauty. And it was like, I was all knowing, but not academically all knowing, just universally all knowing, just a sense that there's all this knowledge in the universe that I now have inside me. And I was glowing like this ball of light that my grandfather was. And suddenly another ball of light joined us. And this was obviously a person of authority. Um, you know, I don't like to say it was God or Jesus or, you know, any kind of deity, uh, because I don't know. I, I not sure those people even exist there, but um, uh, it spoke to me. It communicated with me uh, telepathically, not in words, and told me that I would have to go back, that this was uh, not the place for me right now that I would have a, a, a full life, 
that I would be uh, successful and uh, uh, would live a long life and that I would have a purpose. In fact, as I learned later, there were many purposes that I had to fulfill. And uh, I was just, I, I just had a sense of awe, just of being in this place, being surrounded by this energy that was there and this being that was communicating with me. And it made me feel quite comfortable. And so uh, this being said, it's time for you to go. And like a good soldier, I turned and went the other way. And then I was in the dark tunnel again. And I was kind of moving downward, just kind of gliding. But this time I was surrounded by this white light. And I was peaceful and calm. And then I came back awake on the battlefield and I could hear the shooting and people screaming and, and, um, I, I was, uh, not, not frightened at all. I was, I was very comfortable. Um, I knew that I wasn't going to die that day. This entity in the white light assured me that no matter what happens on this day, I won't die. Um, and then I would go on to lead a long and productive life. So that gave me some comfort. And uh, one of my men came crawling over to me and he'd been shot um, very badly. And I knew that he was going to go where I just came from. And I held him in my arms. And I just, I looked at him and he died and his spirit rose up out of him. It was like, like gray, very light gray smoke or fog that rose up out of him just a, uh, a little bit, not a lot of it. And I just told him, you know, you're going to a wonderful place and just to relax and let it happen. Oh, that's beautiful. And uh, so after he died, I laid him down and I covered him up. And I told my men that I would go get help uh, because they were still pinned down and taking fire. And as I started to get up off the ground, even though I was very, very badly wounded, um, I started getting up off the ground and the sniper came out of the bushes and opened up on full automatic and shot me five times. I saw the bullets come out of the gun in slow motion. I felt them going into my body. They went into my upper arm, into my chest and through my neck. And I saw the blood splatter and I felt um, no pain and no worry and no concern but I could feel that the bullets went in me and I knew that it was, it was very bad. And I was having trouble breathing because the bullets had torn my throat open. And um, I 
stood up with my rifle and I fired back at that soldier that had just shot me. And he just kind of ran off, I think. I don't know if I hit him or not, but uh, I'm sure I scared the heck out of him because here I was already badly wounded and he shoots me five times and uh, all in the upper body and I get up and shoot back. I mean, this, this has to be frightening for him. Yeah. So I, uh, I couldn't speak. So I couldn't tell my men I was going to go for help. But I started to walk back to where I thought the rest of the company was and to get help and to um, also to kind of take care of myself. I started bandaging myself and covering my wounds. I had to concentrate on drawing air through the holes in my neck and down into my lungs and kind of stop the blood from filling my lungs up. And I had to think about everything. And it was, it was amazing because I still had this white light all around me. I still felt the presence of this energy, this white light energy, this place that I had been to. And I had no fear no worry, no concern, because I knew that I wasn't going to die. And I could see, I was like out of my body, looking at myself, I could see 360 degrees all around me. Um, and I was able to walk straight through these hedgerows, just walk right through them. I mean, they were very dense. This is not, you didn't just walk through. And so I walked through them and I came out where the medics were. And when they ran over and put their hands on me, I immediately went back into my body and I just let go and I relaxed and let them work on me. I could hear that they were in a panic because, you know, they were hollering, you know, watch out for that arm because my arm was almost ripped completely off and um and they said we had to get an airway started and they were just yelling a bunch of different things and finally they loaded i uh, loaded me on a stretcher and uh took me to a field hospital and i spent uh, about a month in a hospital in Vietnam before they, I was stable enough to be transported to Japan um, where I got more surgery, uh, went through some more terrifying experiences. I got malaria when I got there. Um, oh my God. And uh, so here I was all badly wounded. Uh, my wounds were still wide open because they were so big they couldn't close them. I had to kind of let things heal from the inside out. And so I had all these gaping wounds and had malaria on top of it. And now you have to add insult to injury. Now you have malaria. Oh yes. So that, uh, and that got the wounds infected. And uh, so uh, once again, I was 
struggling, but I knew I wasn't going to die. And right after the malaria uh, had, had kind of calmed down and I was stable again, a nurse came to me one evening and, and uh, they had just wheeled this guy in, put him in a bed across from me. And she said, in the morning, can you go over and talk to this guy? He has very similar wounds to you. And she said, I think it would help him if, you know, you could just be with him for a little while. And I said, yeah, I, I, you know, I'd be okay. Of course, I couldn't speak. So I was sign language. I was writing notes and that kind of thing. But, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, I was uh, kind of looking forward to helping this person. Um, I've always been a, a helper and um, I'm an oldest child, so I'm a caregiver. You know? And uh, I woke up in the morning and he wasn't in his bed. And I thought, oh, they must have taken him to surgery or something or, you know, down to the lab or something. And I waited for a while and uh, the nurse came around and I said, well, where's that guy in the other bed? And she said, oh, I'm sorry. He passed away last night. And I thought he had similar wounds to mine and he didn't even make it through the night. And here I am, I'm still here, all these wounds and I've had malaria and I've had a few other complications and I'm still here, still functioning. And um, it was miraculous. Um, even though I don't really believe in miracles, I believe in science, but you know, I, I think science can create miracles. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, but uh, so I went many, many months of recovery, uh, actually many years. Um, I was in uh, the military hospital for about six more months after they shipped me home. And then they discharged me from the military. Um, and they were very nice to me. They actually, at age 19, they gave me a full retirement from the it military. Better. <laughs> yeah, and, I should uh, hope so. And sent me to a VA hospital. And I spent about another year in the VA hospital, but I was kind of getting fed up with all the medical care and the negativity. The doctors were very negative. Well, you're never gonna speak again. We're gonna cut off your left arm because it's just gonna hang there. It's gonna be useless. You know, we can give you a prosthesis that'll be better. Um, you know, they said, we're gonna put in a permanent trach tube uh, so that you can breathe. And I thought, I, I don't, I don't want all that. You're like, can I go back to where I just came sure. from? It'd be a lot yeah. easier. Yeah, easy, way, way easier. But I, uh, I finally just got fed up with it all. And I went into my doctor's office and I said, what happens if I take this tube out of my neck? He looked at me, you die. And I thought, Hey, I've heard that before. <laughs> and uh, 
So I took the tube out and laid it on his desk. And I put my finger over the hole so I could make a whispering sound. And I said, goodbye, I'm going home to die. And I left. <laughs> I walked out of the hospital. Obviously, I didn't die. Right. But now there was kind of a fake out there because, like I said, I, I, I believe in science. So I went down and I read all the medical books that I could read about throat injuries and injuries to the larynx and, the, and such. And what I learned is when you take the trach tube out, they don't even need to sew up the holes. They just close automatically. The, the muscles kind of close down and it seals up. It takes a couple of days, but then it just heals up on its own. So uh, I already had a little knowledge of what probably would happen. Um, the doctor didn't think I was that smart, but <laughs> I was. And so I left and I went home and uh, I did go back to the VA hospital for plastic surgery and an artificial eye. Um, I had my face rebuilt with cartilage from the UCLA cartilage bank and uh, they made me a plastic eye. Your face eye. Look, you would never know. They did they a great job. They did a great job. It was a young plastic surgeon fresh out of school, a really smart kid and he took me on as a special project and uh, he did about I think about four or five different surgeries on my face. And, and rebuilding and reconstructing and uh, adding skin and muscle and all kinds of stuff in there. And um, so, uh, you know, after this was actually about a year or so after I'd been out, after I'd left the hospital, that this all happened. And I went home, I went to college, got married, uh, uh, just kind of moved on with life. But I always thought about the white light. I always thought, you know, it's always with me pretty much. Yeah. It has got me everything that I'd done up to that point was a result of being in that white light. Um, I've had comments on my book when I tell the story, they say, well, how come you don't talk more about the actual their death experience. Well, I'm still going through it. I, it. I'm still in it. It's every day. It doesn't just go away. Oh, it wasn't just those few moments. It's every day. I experience that experience every day. I live it. I don't have to keep talking about what happened out there in the white light because it's happening here. I, oh, that's the cool, that's such a unique thing that you just said. I love, I love that. Also, can you just quickly name the name of your book? Cause there's going to be a link, but I just oh. want to, yeah. <laughs> the, just, the book is called If Morning Never Comes. Which is by a Bill, beautiful title. Bill Vandenbush. Beautiful. And uh, uh, the second edition is out, been out for uh, about five or six years, I think. And uh, the first edition came out and. 2003 and uh then we republished in 2016 and it has so, great reviews 
Those good reviews, yeah. Um, It gets a lot of attention when I go out and people that have read it really enjoy it. I'm amazed that I always get different, people interpret it differently, but it's not, um, I'm not unhappy with the way they interpret it. I mean, it's kind of the way I want it. Um, I wanted it to appeal to a large audience and, and it does. Um, so anyway, I kind of went on with my life and, um, I, I, I started to let go of the near death experience a little bit, not, um, I kind of stopped following that path. I stopped letting, letting it lead me. And I tried to lead it <laughs> to go where I thought it wanted to go, where I thought it should go, where I wanted to go, but not As necessarily. We do. Yeah, we do that. But not necessarily where that white light wanted me to go. That energy, the the spirit. So, um, I. Uh, I then I got divorced and went through some some difficult times and um, I was uh, working in uh, automotive research lab. Um, I had had my own business an automotive shop, and uh, but what I really wanted to do was be a psychologist. <laughs> but everybody told me, "Well, you can't talk. How are you going to be a psychologist?" And then I I listened to them, which was my big mistake. Yeah. And uh, I went another direction, went to the automotive field because that had been a hobby of mine and I was good at it. Um, and then I went to work for this, this research company and they transferred me from Los Angeles to Seattle, Washington. Now I'd been in Seattle when I was in the army because I got training at Fort Lewis, Washington. Um, if you're not familiar with the West Coast, uh, quite a distance between Seattle and Los Angeles, almost as far as from Seattle to the East Coast. Yeah. But, um, and it was different, but I liked it here. I felt, I felt at home when I got here and, uh, so I, my job was good. I liked my job, but they found out they could hire people a lot cheaper up here than out of Los Angeles. You know, we were making good wages there and, uh, people up here, the economy was a little less cost of living was less. So the pay was less. And so I got laid off my job and I began to realize that I think this is part of my my spiritual journey. Yeah. What's happening to me is part of my spiritual journey, my my journey from the light back through life and eventually back to the light, which I haven't gone there finally, but <laughs> right. I do have a question before you sure. even though I'm loving the way the way that it's unfolding. Most people come back from war 
severely traumatized. And I wonder, were you experiencing uh, signs of trauma? And if, and I'm, I imagine there'd be some, um, did that experience of the white light soften that at all? Does it make any difference whether you've had a near-death experience or not? And I think everyone's, I'll just put it this way, one of my friends from childhood, um, I went to school with her, is a war journalist, um, Lindsay Adario, actually. Um, and she's done a lot of, she's an incredible photojournalist, and she's written a book, which is one of the best books out there. Um, I think it's called It's What I Do. And um, yeah. she, I went and saw her speak when she came to visit L.A., and she said, people keep asking me, but why don't, how do you not have PTSD? She's been abducted three times by the Taliban. She's witnessed horrific things, but she keeps going back. And she said, I just, I don't know why I don't. So my, what I was going to say is not everybody will develop PT, proper PTSD. It has a lot to do with your own brain, how, how it works, right. the neurotransmitters. Right. Um, not everyone will actually develop PTSD from trauma, but you know what I'm asking. It's, it's, uh, what was, yeah. The, yeah how were you the, coping? And well, did the, yeah, did, did the, the near death experience helped to a certain degree? Um, but I had had, uh, bad dreams, um, about the war, um, frightening dreams. Um, and, uh, I did get, I got involved with, uh, the VA and the, uh, some of their their uh, counseling programs and went through it, which actually turned out to be part of my, my journey. Um, turned out there was more to going and getting counseling than just going and getting counseling and feeling better about myself. Um, my first, the first group I went to at a little uh, vet center in Seattle. And uh, I went through the group. Um, I participated fully. And at the end of the group, the leader of the group said, hey, how'd you like to be my co-leader next time? You really did good at this. You you know, you seem to have a, a kind of a nat natural uh, affinity for this. And I said, sure, I'd love to. So. A few weeks later, I show up. All the guys are there for the group. I'm there. And I'm now the co-leader. And I'm wondering what the heck it is I'm supposed to do. Because I had no idea what to do. And I had no training or other than my going through the group once. Um, and the secretary came in and said, Bill, you have to run the group. The leader is gone and uh, he's not going to be able to do it. And I thought, oh, my God, <laughs> here I am. So uh, I'm, I'm generally pretty resourceful. So I just I did what I knew that the first group is, which is introductions and, you know, get everybody's name and try to figure out why they're there. And then I went home and I started reading and studying about post-traumatic stress disorder. And I just stayed about a week or two ahead of the group, you know, as far as how much I knew and what they were gonna do. And I made it through the 16 week program as the leader. 
And uh, that kind of eventually led to my going back to school. Um, I had uh, a degree in automotive technology and um, uh, industrial education. Um, but uh, I needed to go back to school. So I went back to school and uh, got a degree in psychology and sociology and eventually a master's degree in social work. And um, I was working at the VA hospital through a series of, of uh, what I like to call guided experiences. <laughs> because no matter what I said or did, it didn't seem to make any difference that always went in my favor. Um, in fact, I went to uh, 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 this guy who I wanted to talk to him about uh, going back to school and getting some education, having the VA pay for it. And he said, uh, no, that probably won't work. And I hollered obscenities at him. And <laughs> called his mother bad names and you know <laughs> not uh, you bill i, I can't imagine I, it I, I did i was furious and um when i was all done with my tirade he looked at me he said have you ever thought about being a counselor <laughs> and i thought well where the heck did that come from yeah. i come to you i've got all this experience in the auto industry i just chewed you up one side and down the other and you say you ever think about being a counselor and i thought okay i'll go with it and i said sure and the next thing i know i got a job as a counselor i have no experience all the people that applied for the job were experienced had degrees in psychology and sociology and i had not just my automotive experience. And um, uh, it just grew from there. I just kept applying for different jobs. And eventually I went to work at the VA hospital uh, and uh, got my finished my master's in social work. And I worked for the VA for about 20 years. Um, I enjoyed the work. I worked with people who uh, have severe mental illness and substance abuse problems. Um, I also, well, I was also a PTSD specialist for the first part of my career there. And then I switched over to uh, dual disorders. But it'd been about 20 years since my near-death experience. And I had never really talked about it. Um, I'd actually had another near-death experience um, when I was in this process of changing careers where um, in, in the book I talk about the, the Avon lady. <laughs> I was kind of down and depressed because I was, you know, I'd lost my job and I couldn't find another job and I didn't know where to go or what to do. And uh, I was sitting in my little apartment and I heard a knock at the door and I opened the door and there's this 
little lady standing there, probably, I don't know, in her 50s, which seemed old to me. And uh, um, she just looked at me and she said, Avon calling. Uh, she actually, is that what they actually oh, say? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the script. I never, yeah. Yeah, and, and so she asked if she could come in and I said, sure. And so that she was so nice of you. Showing me all these different men's colognes and their whole new line of men's toiletries. And uh, I was uh, just not very thrilled with it all. You are so sweet to let her in. So, I actually let the I let the Jehovah's Witnesses in once when I was in college. I, I don't do that I, ever again. I, no, I'll <laughs> never do it again. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I I let her in and we talked and I mean she was really nice. Of course. Um, and at the major, I was amazed that she even came in with me. I mean, I was yeah, you're pretty pretty you ragged do that these days. No, <laughs> no. And uh, uh, she obviously noticed that I was, you know, kind of depressed and down, and my place was a little messy. And um, and she said, uh, you know, our church has a singles group that uh, we go on these retreats, and we're gonna have a retreat next week. And we go up in the mountains, this wonderful place. And uh, uh, we talk about the Bible and Jesus. And I thought, oh crap, that's the last thing I wanna talk about, yeah. you know? Um, and uh, so uh, she kind of went on and, I, and I'm kind of looking for a way out, you know, a way to say, well, no, I can't do that. And so she says, well, it costs $20 to go. And I thought, there's my bargain. <laughs> I don't have, tw I don't have 20 right. bucks. I told her, well, you know, I would love to go. It sounds wonderful, but I don't have the 20 bucks. So I'll see you later. <laughs> Get the hell out of my house. And yeah. She looks at me and she says, well, my husband and I offer scholarships to people who can't afford it. And I thought, oh man, I just can't catch a There's break. There's no here. getting out of this. So I said, okay, I'll pack go. your bags. I'll go, you know. And I'm, I'm starting to learn that the spirit speaks in different ways, and this was probably something I just needed to do, even though I didn't want to. And so uh, that weekend, I took my bag and got on the bus at the church, which was up the street, and and I was probably one of the older people there was mostly younger people. Um, so I didn't have much in common with them. And I wasn't a churchgoer, uh, you know, uh, I've never been a churchgoer for a variety of reasons. And um, so it was, it was just kind of awkward. And um, so I got there. And the place was just gorgeous. I mean, it's way up in the mountains. It was all these little cabins and it was just spectacular. And I, uh, uh, they served up this just wonderful dinner. And after dinner, I went, climbed in bed and thought I'm gonna get a good night's sleep. 
And I woke up the next morning very early. And it was so beautiful outside that rather than go to the Bible study, I decided to go for a walk. And I went walking up this road or path and I kept on walking and I came to this just beautiful meadow, this gorgeous place, greens, wildflowers, trees. And there was a down tree, a log sitting on the ground. And I went over and sat on the log and the morning mist was just rising in the meadow. I mean, it was what a dream, just an incredible picture. And then these three deer come walking out into the meadow. And I thought, oh, can this get any better? You know, and all of a sudden, I'm back in the white light. I'm sitting there in this beautiful place. And I'm back in the white light. And I'm being told that I need to make changes in my life that I need to accept certain things. Um, and I need to listen for the word from my spirit to follow my spirit, to get off the pity pot, take some chances and risks and, uh, that, that everything was going to be all right. I just needed to make some changes. And I thought, okay, okay, I can do this. And Suddenly I was back on the log in the meadow and the deer were out there. And so I sat there for a while and walked back up to the, the, um, the, the camp and uh, the lodge that was there. And everybody was just finishing Bible study, thank God. And <laughs> so uh, I didn't have to go through that. And I had something to eat and I just kind of hung around the rest of the weekend, got to know a few people, took the bus ride home. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> took that bus ride home and um, thought, okay, I have to make changes. You know, the spirit said, make changes. And it kind of said, you know, you have a purpose to fulfill. And I began to see what that purpose was and that it was actually a multifold purpose. The first part of the purpose was to heal myself, not just physically, which was a huge chore, but mentally, emotionally, spiritually, uh, the whole thing. I just, I had to come to grips with everything that had happened up to that point. And then the, the, when I was, had my first near-death experience, there was something said to me that I didn't understand. And it was talk to the people. I didn't understand that at all at the time. So after the second one, the same message came afterwards. Talk to the people. And I'm thinking, well, what the heck does that mean? You know? <laughs> talk to the people. Okay. I talk to people all the time. But, you know, and my thought, first thought was, 
you know, all right, big guy, you want me to talk to the people? Why did you take my voice away? Yeah. Why'd you shoot me through the neck and make it so I can't talk? Mm-hmm. No, I did. I could talk by this time. Um, not real well, but fairly well. I had taught myself. How I was going to gonna ask if you did voice therapy. Yeah, it took me about 10 years. I did go to a, a, a speech therapist who uh, basically said, oh, there's no hope for you because you don't have any vocal cords. Uh, and I don't. I've had it checked many times. How do you that? I'm so fascinated because I've gone through a vocal disorder. I have muscle tension dysphonia and I've been through years of voice therapy and struggles with my voice, having been a voice actor. So I, I know a lot about this and I, that's, I'm just veering off on a different because that's so interesting to me that you can your show yeah what you want how (laughs) yeah i just was curious about how that even how the mechanism works but i mean you don't have to go all into it but it's fascinating well what muscles are you using it was uh, it took a long time and uh what it was was practicing forcing air up past the scar tissue right to make sounds so i practiced making sounds first And then, of course, the way we speak is by manipulating those sounds or vibrations with our mouth. So I had to learn to make the sounds, which was hard to do, and then manipulate them with my mouth to make words. It's incredible. And I practice. I practice, still practice to this day. That's incredible. You're, you're, it's. You, I mean, you, you know, there's a little hoarseness, but you can't, the fact that you can speak so well, because I had to overcompensate because my vocal cords were spastic yeah. and they were, it was, I had vocal cord dysfunction, which then the more I strained to try to manipulate the muscles to do what I wanted to do, then I ended up with muscle tension dysphonia. So uh, it's, I always, so I'm just fascinated by the whole mechanism. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, you're, um, you're welcome. But it's incredible and- to me also just from your experiences uh, because of that, that you were meant to speak. And there's that theme of having lost your voice. And I actually am, need to sit my butt down and write my book because it is about, I was elective mute and then I became an actor and a voice actor and then I lost my voice and then I found my voice again. And um, it's interesting how when spirit wants you to speak, you speak. That's and right. that's, so awesome. So after, after a long time, I realized that, that, uh, spirit gave me this voice because people listen to it. Yeah. They pay attention. It's a unique, it's different. Yeah. And, um, so when I stand up in front of an audience, it, it just draws them in. I don't know why. Yeah. But, um, but it was, uh, it was kind of a long process, uh, many years. And of course, I was going to college at the time and, uh, and then later working. Um, and it, you know, but it got better and better every year. It would get a little yeah. better. And eventually it got to the point where I could, I could feel comfortable speaking in front of groups of people. Um, but that second purpose was to talk to people, to, to 
to be out there and communicate with people about this near-death experience. It had been 20 years. I once tried, I tried to talk about it when I first got home and people gave me funny looks like, yeah. wow, that's really weird, Bill. But what about combat? What was it like to be mm -hmm. in combat? They didn't mind hearing about all that kind of stuff. You know, the blood, the guts and the, and the glory of which there was no glory. Right. And, uh, yeah. and uh, but they didn't want to hear about the near death experience. They, they didn't want to hear about it. Um, it really kind of put them off. So I just stopped talking about it. And uh, when I was in college, there was a woman that ran this lunchroom. Um, it was just a bunch of vending machines with tables in the room and, and uh, she just made change for everybody. But I was sitting eating my lunch one day and she came over and said to me, Someday you're going to talk about all this. And I thought, how do you know? You know, you don't even know who I am. Well, how do you know about all this? And and she kind of uh, gave me some hope that, that things would work out. But I went on, I got my job and went to work for the VA. And uh, I was... Uh, I was in the library in Parkland, Washington one day. I don't even remember what I was doing in there. And I saw this, uh, this poster. Oh, well, I got to go back. When I was in graduate school, um, my professor, we were, I was taking a class called Confrontations with Living and Dying. And I thought, oh, this is going to be good. <laughs> and um, the, the first night, the professor said, get into small groups and talk about your most profound experience with death. So I thought, well, do I or do I not tell the story? And I did. I told the story and people were in awe. And um, the professor had been listening. And he came to me and he said, what you have is a near-death experience. You had a near-death experience. And that was the first time I heard that term. I had never heard that term before. Um, I'd heard about out-of-body and astral projection and different things like that. But I never heard the term near-death experience. But And he said, though, there's somebody you need to call. Um, she runs this group in Seattle. Her name is Kimberly Clark Sharp. And, you know, you need to talk to her. And I said, yeah, okay, right. You know, like a typical guy, you know, yeah, right, right. Yeah, I'll do it, you know, and put it out of mind. And so it's about a year later and I'm in this library and there's a poster on the wall that says International Association of Near Death Studies meets here Saturday. And I thought, this is what my professor was talking about. This is the thing. So I thought, okay, I, I think I'll go. I think I'll go see what it's about. So because I was beginning to learn that the spirit always puts things in your path that, you know, and you, but you have to make the decision. You have to decide whether or not to accept it. 
So I went to the meeting. Uh, there were like six people there in the meeting. Um, Kimberly Clark Sharp was not there at this meeting. Um, in fact, this was not her group at all. Anyway, being the new guy, of course, I had to tell my story. And uh, I told my story. And the leader of the group said, there's somebody you need to meet. Her name is Kimberly Clark Sharp in Seattle. And we're going up there next week. You can go with us and meet her. So I said, okay, I, I can do that. Spirit <laughs> so wasn't next, gonna let this go. It wasn't gonna let go. So I thought, okay, I'm just gonna ride with this and see where it goes. So the next week we go up there and, you know, this is like, I had told this story once in class and once at this group. That's all I'd ever told the whole story before in my life. And, um, and this was 20 years after the fact. So um, we're in Seattle and they take me over and I meet Kimberly and, uh, you know, we chit chat and hit it off right away. Um, and uh, she says, well, do you want to talk today? And I said, no. I said, I, I'd rather just sit and kind of watch and see what you do and listen. So I'm sitting there and they start the meeting and go through all their housekeeping stuff. And Kimberly says, you know, we have somebody new here who I want to call up to speak. She says, Bill Vandenbush, come up here. <laughs> Wow. And I thought, what did I say? I said, I don't want to talk. And, uh, but, you know, I did anyway. I went up and I told my story. And uh, it was just magic after that. Um, I was speaking at conferences. I was speaking at on television. I was appearing on all kinds of TV shows, radio shows, newspaper and magazines were writing stories about me. Talk to the people, and, Bill. And I was talking to the people. Yeah. And uh, so I was still working. And um, I this was about about eight or nine years went by and and I was still working and I was still appearing on TV and conferences and radio and we didn't have podcasts back then, but um, uh, we barely had computers. That's how long ago it was. Yeah. But uh, so everybody kept saying, you got to write a book. And I thought, you know, I don't, I don't want to write a book. I'm not a very good writer. In fact, when I was in school, all through college, grad school, I always got danged on my writing. It was just not very good, especially my grammar was really bad. So I thought, well, I don't really want to write a book. But I kept hearing it over and over and over. You got to write the book. So I thought, okay, I'm a, I'll do this. And um, I started writing and it was just really difficult. I would get through a couple of pages and it was my same crappy writing from college. <laughs> and I thought, you know, um, I have to learn to write. 
So I started talking to people about writing, reading books about writing, um, and getting people to critique and edit my writing. And then um, a friend of mine said, well, you know, if it's easier for you, you can just dictate this on the tape. We had tape back then. <laughs> and, uh, and then I'll type it up for you. And then you have a typewritten thing. So um, I said, yeah, that sounds good. Then I can kind of see it all written up like that. So I, I got the, um, uh, I got the, uh, the uh, uh, tape recorder and I sat down and I was sitting in my office and I, I uh, started talking and telling the tape recorder my story. And I thought, yeah, this ought to make a good book. This is, you know, a lot of material. And so I gave it to this lady and she typed it all up. And it was 10 pages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I thought, all that? And it was only 10 pages. Um, so anyway, uh, I thought, okay, I've got to learn more here. So I started writing, I learned to type a little better, got a word processor and uh, wrote this book and had people look at it and, and read it. And uh, I thought, well, okay, now it's all written. I've got it written. I've gone through this process. It took me a couple of years. Now I gotta get it published. And um, I started sending out letters to publishers and agents and all kinds of things. And of course, like everybody else, I got you know tons of rejection letters. And uh, I was just about to give up. And a friend of mine who I'd given a copy of my manuscript to and asked him to read it and to critique it and let me know I uh, um, I heard back from him and he says, I really like your manuscript and I'll be happy to tell you what I think about it and what I think needs to be changed, but I don't want to give it back to you. I want to keep it because I want to read it over and over. Wow. I thought, well, this is a good sign. But a week later, he calls me up and he says, um, you know, I've read your manuscript now a couple of times. And uh, he said, would you mind if I shared it with a friend of mine who's a publisher? I said, well, of course not. He said, well, good, because I did. And they want to <laughs> they want to publish your book. <laughs> oh, that's so great. And so, uh, but I had to rewrite it again. I had this, it was, um, you know, like most authors, I wasn't happy with it and I had to redo it. Uh, and um, probably the biggest help in that process um, was my wife, Shannon, who uh, we weren't married at the time, but she read my manuscript and gave me feedback. And most of all, she gave me encouragement to 
um, just kind of keep moving forward. And we had met uh, actually a, a couple of years before that, and had just been friends, and and uh, and we had maintained this friendship, and uh, we used to meet for dinner every once in a while, and um, she'd talk to me on the phone every once in a while, uh, actually about once a week. <laughs> That's pretty and, regular. Uh, um, uh, finally, we, uh, we decided that, uh, that maybe there was you loved each other. more to all of this. Yes. <laughs> and so, uh, we did, we got married and, and life has been wonderful ever since. So oh, that I is couldn't, so beautiful. couldn't ask for a better spouse. And I think that the spirit brought her to me. I think it brought her to me at the time when I needed some help with my book um, and she helped me in writing that. And then later when we rewrote the book, the second edition, um, she was a big help with that and actually wrote a chapter herself. Um, and so uh, uh, it's kind of been a joint venture all along. Um, but I did uh, not long after we were married, I had another near-death experience. I'm just going to tell this one quickly. Yeah, I was going to um, say you don't, I was going to ask you about it because I want to know what, why you had, I mean, not why you had it, but I guess, yeah, why you had it because what was left unsaid and how, what still needed to be learned. Oh, there's a ton that needs to be learned. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> Even now, but um, I got very ill and, and I had, I'd done something stupid. We went out to film a show. It was outdoors, it was raining, and I didn't take a jacket. You know, and this is the Pacific Northwest. It doesn't get warm here. No. <laughs> so uh, about a week later, I end up in the hospital. I've got pneumonia, and a couple of other problems. And um, Shannon and I are at the hospital and she says, I'm gonna go home and leave you here. She'd been with me for a day or so. And uh, so then I'll come back the next day. And I said, okay. So I'm there by myself. And uh, the next thing I know, I wake up a week later. I'm at the University of Washington Hospital, uh, which was uh, very far from the hospital I started at. And I was told that I had gone into respiratory arrest and had been in a coma during this time. And this, I thought, well, that's what this was all about. This, because I thought, at first I kind of thought, kind of thought it was a dream, but I thought it's too real to be a dream. It's too, it's too vivid. Um, it's more like a near-death experience. And um, what it was, it began by me flying through. I went through the dark tunnel into the white light and just kind of whizzed right through that. And then I was flying through the universe. And I was just in awe of this universe, which is huge. I mean, it's, it's so much bigger than anyone ever imagined. And... Uh, 
but I seemed to be able to go wherever I wanted in that universe just by thinking about it. I was able to kind of transport there very quickly. I mean, I was going millions, if not billions of light years in a matter of moments. And uh, I thought this is wonderful. And it was just teeming with life. There was so much life out there. It was like, it was like being in the ocean with fish all around you. It, it was that kind of uh, feeling with that much life, that much energy in it. And um, I had a guide. Uh, my, my spirit guide was there with me and started to talk to me after I kind of acclimated to this and told me, you know, you can do whatever you want here. You can even talk to people that you want to talk to. And I thought about it. And the one person I've admired throughout my life was Leonardo da Vinci. And I said, I want to talk to Leonardo da Vinci. Good one. And uh, the spirit said, well, you know, you can't actually talk to da Vinci, he's dead. But you can talk to the spirit that inhabited da Vinci's body. And that spirit will have some information about da Vinci. So I went and I'm, I'm not going to tell you everything because I want you to read the book. Yes, <laughs> definitely. But, but. I talked to the spirit and it was just the most amazing thing. And um, after I was done talking to the spirit, actually right about the end of my conversation, um, during the time that I was up there in the universe, every once in a while I would see this red light and it would draw me to it. And my wife, Shannon, is a Reiki master. And I learned later that she was doing Reiki at these times. And that was drawing me back oh, wow. to her. And so uh, I see the red light and I'm drawn back to the red light. But this time I go through the red light and I can see myself lying in the bed with tubes coming out of me all over. Um, I see Shannon standing at the foot of the bed. I see the nurses and the doctors and they're starting to take the trach tube and, the, and all the breathing apparatus off of me. And uh, it was at that moment I realized I can make a choice right now. I can stay here in the universe and live my afterlife or I can go back there and finish my life back on earth. Well, back a um, number of years ago, I promised Shannon that I would live to be about 81 or two um, because then we would have been married like 25 years and that would be our anniversary. So I told her I would live to that anniversary. I promised her I would. So I thought, okay, I've got to keep my promise. And I chose to go back. And I realized that this was my choice. I had a choice. Go back or stay. Now, I don't think everybody gets a choice. I was going to ask you that. But, but I was very fortunate that I did. 
And um, so I did, I went back and I got healthier again and I've had a few more bouts of illness and struggled, but for the most part, I'm fairly healthy and I plan to make it to that 25th wedding anniversary. So what a great anniversary gift. <laughs> it's my, it's my goal. That's beautiful. Oh my gosh. That is the most beautiful thing. Um, you know, I'm, I, I'm sure I know it, I can imagine it hasn't been easy going through all of that physical trauma, even the emotional trauma. Although I know that you have a beautiful attitude and a, you haven't lost your your softness. I can tell just by spending time with you that you're just such a gentle, kind, loving soul. I try. Yeah, I and I know that can be really difficult when you've seen so much terror in your life and experienced so much physical pain and discomfort. I would love to know, having gone through all of this, do you have any insight? I mean, no one can really know for sure, but do you have any insight about why certain people are chosen to have these experiences or, or allowed these experiences. Um, and it, is it part of their soul path from the beginning? Is it something that happens and they say, um, due to free will, what are your thoughts on why this happens to some people? Um, I I've always sort of been an, just from speaking with lots of people in the ions community and yeah. outside of the ions community, but that it seems as if in a sense, their soul's purpose was to come here and be, either a light worker or at least speak to the people, spread the message, be a medium, whatever their healing modality might be. Um, I just wonder, yeah, you can kind of riff on that any way you like. Well, I think that, um, I don't think there's anything special. I think it's just that you have to be open to it. Yeah. And that, um, some people are more open. Um, their their vibrations, their frequencies, are more in tune with uh, their spirit from the universe. And uh, I think we all have that energy, so we all have that ability. Although I'm beginning to think that there are people without a soul, without a spirit, that do exist. And there's no chance for them to ever have that experience just because they don't have a soul. They don't have a spirit. They, they're not connected to the energy of the universe, mm -hmm. you know, and that's sad. I mean, it's, I don't think it's a lot of people. I think it's just, um, you know, uh, a relative handful, you know, maybe a million or so. Yeah, which is a lot, but <laughs> yeah, small but comparatively. Yeah, I mean, we have hundreds of millions of people in this yeah. world. And, um, but my, you know, if, if we are connected to that, um, I think it takes some practice, but I think anybody can make that connection. Yeah. Um, I've, I've, over the years, have helped some people to make that connection. Um, and I, I just, I believe that, you know, almost anybody can. We all share that energy. Every living thing shares that energy. And um, 
when we can learn to love all living things. Um, you don't have to like everything, but you, yeah. you know, it's important to love everything, uh, especially everybody. You don't have to like everybody, yeah. um, but you need to love everybody. Mm-hmm. And that may sound contradictory, but love is more of an energy thing. Actually, love is something that you give, not something you get. Yeah. And that's kind of hard to grasp sometimes, too, that concept of giving love versus getting love. But when we learn to do that, when we learn to give love and care about other people, it brings us closer to that spirit, to that energy of the universe. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, uh, it's doable, but maybe not everybody can do it. I don't know. Yeah, I know. I And I, I always think, I've always believed that, and I don't know the truth, but the way I've always seen it is we're, I've always thought of it. And I've said this before that our souls are just lights from the, you know, from this other realm. And yeah. my theory was always that it's about what bodies were put into. And some bodies are defective in that way where people are sociopaths because of the size of their brain and the way that their brain is structured. So the antenna is broken kind of thing. So that's, I always look at it and that's my way of looking at it is that it's, I think we're all born pure light, except that we get put into these bodies where we are corrupted by what we're looking through. The, The eyes we're looking through and the brain that we're thinking through, and that's where things get corrupted. And I, I always look at it as people say, well, why would God allow this to happen? God doesn't allow this to happen as much as we all have free will. And some people, I think without the dark, there's we, we, the light I, isn't at yeah. the contrast of the, there needs to be dark. We try to, to the light. We try to personify God. Yeah. God is not a person. Yep. Exactly. God, God is the energy of the universe. Yeah. Now, I have questions about that because I don't know if God, if there's a source of that energy or it just exists. It just, it just is. Right. Um, but we'll learn eventually. We'll, learn. we'll know. The other <laughs> we'll night. It out. Yeah. The other night uh, at dinner, my dad, my brother-in-law, my sister, the kids, they're all, they're visiting and um, we're at my parents' house and we're talking about the NASA developments and, um, and my dad, I found out, is not an atheist. I said that on the program, I guess. My mom's like, he's not. He's surprised you think that. He's more of a uh, deist, I guess. So um, what he had said, though, was, but then it begs the question, let's go back. Okay, the Big Bang. Let's go back even farther. The, the universe is, and I was like, the universe is always expanding. And then we always go back to, but where did that come from? Where did, and we all, you know, we all. Uh, sure. Agree that it has no source. Yeah, like where did God, the source, come from? Yeah. Where did how did something come from nothing? It's crazy. Yeah. I try in my book, I try to talk about the difference between material being and energy being. And that basically the energy is all pervasive. It's everywhere it exists. Everywhere, all at once. And the material being is the the planets, the people, all the material things that we experience. But 
as we're finding out right now um, with this new telescope in space, there are billions of planets, billions of galaxies, maybe. You know, uh, there's got to be more people and there's got to be more of this energy. It's not just us. It's not just here. It's universal. That's what we were talking about. And I said, I said, and that solidifies I'm the most spiritual of the whole family other than my mom, but I'm still the most. I said, and that right there is why I believe we are living in a matrix and this is all a simulation. Yeah. <laughs> that was our dinner conversation was there is so much we don't we will it is the mystery. My mom always told me when I was younger, she said, I don't think we we can't explain God. And she's not religious either, but we can't explain God or what happens when we die or what's really going on here because it just doesn't fit into our earthly paradigm. She right. said, I think it's something that, and that always stuck with me. Now I'm seeing that more and more that as my near-death experience friends have said, there is no time on the other side. Everything's happening at the same time and not at all and all together and in layers and in different dimensions. And then you realize there's just no way for our brains to comprehend that it's just totally out of our paradigm yes so in summation even though i could listen to you speak i won't put you through that i could listen to you speak for 10 more hours uh, i will i i wish to release you back into your life i just what is the most important thing that you want people to know i think the important thing is to the most important thing it's just to love each other, care about each other. You know, it's uh, it's not that hard. Yeah. You know, just give each other a break every once in a while. That's beautiful. Thank you. It's simple and it doesn't need to be more complicated than that. That's pretty much what every near-death experiencer says. It's what I say having, I, I'm an empath. and I And when I tell people at the end of my, podcast episodes sometimes I'll say I love you do I know who's listening I'm not saying I like every single one of you I, I don't know all of you what I'm saying is I deeply truly love every single one of you because you are me and I am you and that's it it's the namaste the light in me sees the light in you we are all one and I love you as I love me and I love me as I love you awesome that's beautiful so thank you for being the person that you are the light you are in this world we need we need this we we really need people like you out there and just um it has been such an honor and a pleasure to meet you to speak with you to share in this experience with you and uh uh yeah thank you doesn't even sum it up it's just it's just the feeling again of oneness and namaste namaste